Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. He made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you would deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what they should take. 
And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Well, there's a man by the name of Captain Charles B. McVeigh III, and he graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1920. And a number of years after that, he was commissioned to uh, be the captain of the USS Indianapolis. And as the captain of the USS Indianapolis, he led the ship valiantly. And he led uh, invasions on Iwo Jima and Okinawa, And while he was in Okinawa, his ship shot down seven Japanese fighter pilots. Uh, But in the process, there was a Kamaskasi fighter that hit the ship and damaged and breached the hull of the ship. But remarkably, he was able to get that ship to safety, and they were able to repair the ship. And then after that, he was tasked with a top-secret mission. And this mission was that he was to deliver uranium and the materials to make an atomic bomb to an island in the Pacific called Tinian. This was a mission that really nobody knew about except for the highest level of the military brass. And, they, and he, took, he stopped in Hawaii, and then he went on to Tinian and dropped off the cargo that he was carrying. And then after that, he stopped in Guam, and from Guam he was to head to an island of the Philippines called Light. While he was at Guam, he requested that a destroyer would accompany him on his, ship, on his uh, trip to Light. Because he didn't have, uh, Jap- uh, he didn't have anti-submarine equipment uh, on the USS Indianapolis. But he was told that it was unnecessary. This was a time when the Japanese uh, Navy didn't have a lot of power. They were kind of losing their steam. Uh, the U.S. was about to invade the Japanese homeland. And so his superiors said to him, it's not necessary. Don't worry about it. You don't need a destroyer to escort you to uh, to light. But while he's on his way to light, it was 11 p.m. on July 29th, and a Japanese submarine spotted the ship, fired a number of torpedoes. Two of the torpedoes hit the ship, and the ship sank within 12 minutes. But it got even worse. The military officials in light apparently made a number of mistakes and Partially because it was a top-secret mission, they never even realized that the ship didn't arrive in light. So they never even knew that it sank. So they didn't send any rescue crews. And nobody found them until three days later, on August 2nd, when a fighter pilot was just passing by and happened to see them in the water. By that time, a number of them had drowned, a number of them had died of dehydration, Some of them had been eaten by sharks. In total, 1,196 1,196 men, 879 of them died. The remarkable part about this story is that the captain, Captain McVeigh, was court-martialed. And he's the only Navy captain who's ever been court-martialed because of the sinking of his ship by an enemy of power. Only time it's ever happened. He was notified that he was going to be court-martialed, but he wasn't told why, what he did wrong. One writer says this, Captain McVeigh was notified but not told what specific charges would be brought against him. 
He says the reason was simple. The Navy had not yet decided what to charge him with. They wanted somebody to blame. So eventually he was court-martialed and they charged him with two charges. The first was that he didn't give an order to abandon ship. Now that was but it was kind of hard to do because he was, it was, his ship was uh, destroyed by these torpedoes. They didn't have an intercom system to give that order. So he was eventually acquitted of that charge. The second charge he was convicted of, and that was that he didn't perform evasive zigzag maneuvers. And his orders had been that he was to, provide, to, to perform these evasive zigzag maneuvers at his own discretion. And the only reason that he had stopped was because it was very dark and very foggy and it would have been dangerous and against military protocol to do zigzag maneuvers in the midst of low visibility. Yet they blamed him for this tragedy. They convicted of him, him of this and they threatened to take away all of his military credentials so that he would be at the very bottom of the military and he would kind of lose his career. Thankfully, his punishment wasn't executed. But you think about that and you think about how could something like that happen? How could someone who served his country valiantly, who clearly cared for the best interests of his sailors and his ship, how could he be accused of doing something when he didn't do anything wrong? Part of it could have been a personal vendetta, but I think part of it was they were looking for somebody to blame. I mean, when you think about it, there were a lot of people that you could blame. You could blame the people in light who didn't send rescue ships. You could blame the, his superiors who refused to send him a destroyer. There was also talk that there, another ship had sank just a short time before, and, they, and yet nobody told Captain McVeigh about this. So there were a lot of people who could, uh, you could blame for this tragedy, but it was much easier to just blame... To just blame Captain McVeigh. To put somebody as the face of the blame. And I think that we often do that when there's a tragedy that happens or something bad happens. That we want to have a cause, a direct cause. And you've seen a number of different shows in the last few years that talk about people who have been convicted of crimes that they probably didn't do. Uh, Shows like Making a Murderer or uh, Netflix's The Staircase. Or the last defense. And in these situations, something bad happens. There's a tragedy that happens. And then then there's somebody that's kind of nearby that maybe is not the most ethical person. And so there's this connection to say, that person had to do it. And sometimes, even if there's a lack of evidence, these prosecutors, they kind of create a story and put evidence around them and interpret it in a certain way to blame somebody. So that, it, so that it makes sense, so that we can understand why this evil happens. And I think that there's something deeper that goes on in kind of our human uh, psyche when we do that, is that if we kind of put the blame out there, then everything makes sense. And if we put the blame out there, we don't need to think about the blame inside. If we put the blame as a bunch of people who do evil things, If there's people out there who do evil and if we would just correct them or deal with them, then the world would be a better place. It kind of insulates us and we don't have to think about the ambiguous nature of evil. But sometimes we may be complicit. Sometimes a multitude of people may be complicit. And I think that's what's happening in this passage that we're looking at today. 
A tragedy has occurred in the minds of the religious authorities. They have lost their authority. They've lost their power. Jesus has humiliated them. He has spoke out against them. He is taking the favor from the, the crowd's favor is turning to Jesus rather than to the religious authorities. And to them, that is a tragedy. And to them, he is the one who's responsible for this. He is the one who is a sinner, a blasphemer. He's the one who deserves to die. And so in their minds, he's the source of all their problems. And if they get a, do away with him, then their problems disappear. And so verse 55 says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They knew in their minds that he had to be guilty, but they didn't have evidence that he was guilty. Just like the case of Captain McVeigh. And it appears that every step of the way in Jesus' trial, they, the Jewish leaders subverted the normal operation of, of justice. For, in the first instance, there is never, never any record of the Sanhedrin meeting in the house of the high priest. And yet in this case, they meet in the house of the high priest. That they're just trying to get a verdict. Trying to get everybody together. They just want him to be guilty. Scholar James Edwards writes about all this. The Sanhedrin short-circuited, uh, may have short-circuited procedures and contravened the law egregiously at points in order to expedite Jesus' execution. They just wanted a guilty verdict. And yet, so they subverted justice. The Mishnah recorded uh, situations that they recorded that when there was a case of capital punishment, when someone was going to be given capital punishment, there had to be two, two trials and they had to be convicted at both trials. And so if Jesus was convicted here, he would have to be tried again the next day. And once again, to kind of confirm the conviction to make sure that an innocent man wouldn't be put to death. Further, these trials had to occur during the daytime, not at night. And yet these religious leaders break this command. Further, a charge had to be confirmed by two witnesses. And it says in the text that they, these witnesses just keep bringing charges against Jesus, but they don't agree. Finally, they come up with that he says that he'll destroy the temple made with hands, and then he'll rebuild it with a temple not made with hands. But he says even with this, their testimony doesn't agree. Finally, they ask him, are you the, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus responds that he is. And they all agree that he's worthy of death. Now, even this, in this, he would have been subverting justice. They would have been subverting justice because his own testimony wasn't enough to convict him. Even if someone confessed to something, you would need another witness to confirm it. And yet they all conclude he's guilty. He's deserving of death. And so they began that judgment on him immediately. They spit on him. They cover his face. They mockingly said, prophesy to us. And they take him to Pilate and they accuse him of a bunch of different things, probably most of them being complete fabrications. And then comes the time in the feast when Pilate usually released one prisoner as a sign of mercy and good faith. Look at what it says in verse 10 of chapter 15. Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. And so he expected that they, the crowd would want to release Jesus. They had supported him for so long. 
And in essence, Pilate was right that it was out of envy, but the text continues and says in verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have them release for them Barabbas. They turn the tide of the crowd. Pilate seems a little bit confused, and so he asks the crowd, so why do you want Jesus crucified? Well, he says, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. The fickle crowd that just a few days prior, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now their cries have turned to crucify him, crucify him. Because often the crowd just goes along with what makes sense in the moment. It's not about what's true, it's about what makes sense in the moment. Listen to what Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard says about the crowd. Do you dare to claim that human beings in a crowd are just as quick to reach for truth, which is not always palatable, as for untruth, which is always deliciously prepared? The untruths have been deliciously prepared for the crowd. And so when the religious leaders cry out that Jesus is the problem, that Jesus is the one that we must rid the world of, they shout in unison, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd isn't concerned with the truth. The crowd is concerned with what makes sense in the moment. And we see throughout history, the Bible is, the, is unique in that it takes the perspective of the victims. In other ancient Near Eastern literature, what you see is that the people who are in power are the people who write history. So if someone is condemned to death, it's because they deserve it. Because the people who are in power are saying they deserve it and that's what people read. But the Bible is, is different in that the victims are the ones who are the heroes. The victims are the ones who are not guilty. And it seems in this passage that the whole world has turned against Jesus. His disciples have abandoned him. The Romans taunt him. They say, hail king of the Jews, mockingly. As Jesus is put on the cross, people walk by and they shake their heads and say, you would destroy the temple. Why don't you come down and save yourself? The religious leaders walked by proudly and said, he said he, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And in essence, what they're saying is the world is a better place without Jesus. He's the problem with the world and him like and people like him. And now that we rid the world of him, the world is a better place. But the most remarkable part about this passage that I think is that Jesus, he doesn't defend himself. Jesus doesn't defend himself. In chapter 14, 60 to 61, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and gave no answer. Chapter 15, verses 3 to 5 says, And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Here Jesus is taking the form of the suffering servant described in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So just think about that for a moment. Think about if someone came and brought a number of terrible charges against you. 
charges that weren't even true? How would you respond to that? You might get angry and say, no, I, I didn't do any such thing. You also might have a propensity to turn the finger the other way. Say, you are a liar. You're making all this up. Why would you do something so terrible? If you were Jesus, you might start picking out the hypocrisy of the scribes and the religious leaders who cared about their own position but didn't care about the poor or the worship of God. You might ask God to send a voice down from heaven or a thunderbolt for good measure. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He just stays silent. He doesn't refute their charges. He doesn't defend himself. So why does Jesus do that? I think that Jesus stays, to understand why Jesus stays silent, we need to understand a practice that was practiced in the Old Testament that's described in Leviticus chapter 16. And the practice is called scapegoating. Leviticus sixteen twenty one to 22, it says this, And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and all the transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it, send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat, goat go free in the wilderness. I think that the reason that Jesus is silent is because he's taking the form of a scapegoat. As the religious leaders cry out, crucify him, crucify him. In essence, they're saying Jesus is the problem with the world. But they don't realize that they're really the problem with the world. I mean, they're crucifying God's own son. Doing the most unspeakable evil imaginable. Defrauding the poor. Doing just terrible things. And yet, rather than lash out at them in anger, Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll become the scapegoat. I'll take the blame. I'll take the shame so that you might be forgiven. See, Jesus chose not to defend himself so that he might defend you. He chose not to defend himself so that he might defend you. Because he had two options in the moment when these scribes and religious leaders were bringing these accusations against him. The first option is he could defend himself and he could cry out to the Father for justice. And for sure the Father would answer his cry and bring justice upon all the sin and the guilt of humanity. The truth is, who could stand up to that kind of judgment? But the other option is that he could choose Not to defend himself, but to defend us. To choose to take our place. To become the problem for a time. To take his sin and to become sin in himself. To take the position of a scapegoat so that we might never be cast away from God's presence. January 26, 2001, a man named Siko Sakamoto, a plasterer worker in Tokyo... Uh, was working in a subway, and he fell onto the subway tracks. A man named Lee Su Huang, a Korean student in Japan for language, language studies, leaped down onto the track to save Sakamoto. But unfortunately, both Huang and Sakamoto were unable to get off the train, and they were run over by the train and killed. But this act of love by this Korean student on behalf of a Japanese laborer caused many people in Japan to kind of reconsider how they 
spewed Korean people. Because since going back to World War II, there had been a great animosity between Koreans and Japanese. They don't, they don't like each other. They have stereotypes about one another. But as this Korean gave his life for a Japanese person, people's perceptions started to change. Even the prime minister of Japan lamented the way that they had thought about Koreans in the past. And they made some efforts towards reconciliation. One person named Nabuki, a 62-year-old Japanese person, said this, I felt a kind of shame. A young foreigner sacrificed his life for a Japanese. This is not an easy thing to do. David A. Slagle writes this, Reconciliation rarely occurs without sacrifice. By giving his one and only son, God took the initiative in healing our broken relationship with him. He made the supreme sacrifice for us so that we might be reconciled to him. Jesus, in becoming the scapegoat, he broke the cycle of violence. When we're accused of something, our tendency is to blame someone else. It's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. But Jesus said, okay, I'll take the blame. It's my fault. I'll take the blame for your sin. I'll take responsibility so that you might go free. Jesus chose to defend himself so that we, that he might, chose not to defend himself so that he might defend you. And what good news is that? What glorious news is that? That for those of us who struggle with the guilt of, of sin that we've committed, that we can find hope and we can find freedom, whether those are really big sins or really small sins comparatively. As believers in Jesus, we have an advocate who intercedes for us. When the Satan comes and tries to accuse us, we can look at the cross. Jesus, who defends us, who says, I've, I've taken responsibility for that. I've taken the blame for that sin. So for those who are believers in Jesus, don't let Satan beat you down when you're feeling the the weight of guilt. Guilt is kind of a warning sign that something is wrong. And Satan wants to take our guilt and to tell us, you you should just give up. You should just quit. You've done too many things wrong. You might as well just keep on doing whatever you want because you're never going to please God anyways. But guilt is meant to draw us to Jesus. And when we go to Jesus with our guilt, we find grace. We find mercy. The reality that he's paid for it already. That he's taken the blame for us. Great reformer Martin Luther talks about this in one of his works. He says, the genius of Christianity takes the words of Paul, who gave himself for our sins, as true and efficacious. We're not to look upon our sins as insignificant trifles. On the other hand, we're not to regard them as so terrible that we must despair. Learn to believe that Christ was given not for picayune and imaginary transgressions, but for mountainous sins. Not for one or two, but for all. Not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly ingrained. And then Martin Luther says this, Practice this knowledge and fortify yourself against despair. Particularly in the last hour when the memory of past sins assails the conscience. Say with confidence. And then he gives a saying that I think is a great 
kind of summation of theology. And it's in uh, your spiritual formation guide. It will be on the screen. And it's something that we can kind of run to. Not as something that's like scripture, but something that kind of encapsulates a Christian theology. That when we're struggling with guilt, we can go to this. When we're struggling with thinking like we're something, thinking that we're, we don't need God, we can run to this statement. And so it's kind of a declaration of the fact that both we're sinners, but that we find grace in Jesus. I'd like for us to read this statement together. So it will be on the screen and it's in your uh, bulletins if you'd read it together with me. Christ, the Son of God, was given not for the righteous, but for sinners. If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. No, Satan, you cannot delude me into thinking I am holy. The truth is, I am all sin. My sins are not imaginary transgressions, but sins against the first table. Unbelief, doubt, despair, contempt, hatred, ignorance of God, ingratitude towards Him, misuse of His name, neglect of His word, etc., and sins against the second table, dishonor of parents, disobedience of government, coveting of another's possessions, etc. Granted that I have not committed murder, adultery, theft, and similar sins indeed, nevertheless I have committed them in the heart. And therefore I am a transgressor of all the commandments of God. Because of my transgressions are multiplied, and my own efforts at self-justification, rather a hindrance than a furtherance. Therefore, Christ, the Son of God, gave himself into death for my sins. That's the gospel. Therefore, Christ, the Son of God, gave himself for our sins. He chose not to defend himself so that he might defend us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that in the moment when you were accused, you didn't turn the finger back to bring judgment upon us and upon all who, are, who do evil. Lord, we thank you that you took the blame. You took the shame. You took all of our sin and guilt upon yourself so that we might be free, so that we might have a relationship with the Father that lasts forever. Lord, today I pray for those who are struggling with guilt. They've done things that have done wrong and it just, it just can't shake that feeling of guilt from their hearts. Lord, I pray that they would run with that guilt to, to you. That they give it over to you knowing that you've already paid for it. Knowing that you've already taken responsibility for it. And that when they do that, they find your grace and find your peace that passes all understanding. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace even when we don't deserve it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.